Welcome to episode 133 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Welcome to the off-season, Courtney. It's finally here. Ah, it's a lovely place. It's not so bad, right? It's amazing. No, I look at the ATP WTA app right now, and it's blank. Blank! There's not even like a weird 125 anywhere. Nope, nothing. It's over. Shut it down. It's great. Let's Blissful stuff. Blissful. We only get to enjoy it for a month or so. And I realize, like, people who are really... A month is aggressive. Yeah. I realize people who are really into tennis are like, oh, I can't wait for it to come back. But, like, come on. Live your lives. Meet, you know, leave your house. It's the holidays, people. Yeah. Like, be merry. Go Christmas shopping. Uh, Use your bandwidth for other purposes other than tennis. Refresh yourselves. Get some perspective, which is what I need to do, which is what Ben needs to do, which is what all of us needs to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when after the fire before the fireworks have even gone out on January 1st, we can jump back in, re-engage and be, get excited for what is going to be an epic 2016 season because there's the Olympics. Yep. So let's not burn, you know, the wick all the way to the bottom. Let's chill out for a little while. Save yourselves. It's tennis. It'll always keep going. No one cares about IPTL. Let's move on. Let's move on indeed. Before we get to a bunch of your questions and stuff, let's quickly wrap up what happened last weekend, which was Great Britain, a.k.a. the Murray family, winning the Davis Cup in what would have been a surprise, I think, at the beginning of the year. And definitely like as of a few years ago, no one would have seen this coming, but felt pretty uh, straightforward this weekend. The tie went exactly as expected, minus the first two sets uh of the first singles being won by Kyle Edmund before he flamed out real hard. Courtney, thoughts on on the weekend and the big moment for Andy Murray? Judy Murray should first of all be damned. (laughs) Is that a verb? I'm going to make it a verb because if somebody gets knighted, what happens if it's a woman? Because they get damned. They don't get knighted, do they? Uh, I think the verb is dubbed. I think you get dubbed. Seriously? I think it's called dubbed. I think you get no. Okay, tonight. in this world where there's dub smashes and we call doubles dubs, and you roll up on dubs as well, uh-huh. uh, I, I'm not really down with dubs. I don't like that. Okay. I just say damed. Okay, damed is fine. I know she you, should be damed. She should be damned proud of herself also because her kids. Have I see what you did her. there. Yeah, pun. <laughs> pun. Yeah, no. I mean, like it's amazing when you think about. Okay, you have Andy Murray, and and he is. Let's not even pretend to say. I mean. We all know that he is the fourth man on a totem pole of four. Yeah. Possibly five, even if you include Stan Wawrinka, but we're going to put Murray at four for now. I think that's fair. Um, Yeah, I think that's fair in terms of a career arc and career accomplishments. Stan has his moments, but consistency is not his strong suit, as I ranted about uh, last week. So, yeah, I mean, he is the fourth man on the totem pole. He's kind of always the outside looking in. He's the guy that makes everybody want to say there's a big three, not a big four. Right. All these sorts of things. And there's merit to all of those arguments that seemingly would denigrate <laughs> kind of what he's done. But few human beings could put up with the absolute bull crap that Andy Murray has had to pull up, put up with being the number one player out of Great Britain for virtually his entire professional career pretty quickly yeah 
Yeah, pretty quickly. So, um, and he's done it incredibly well. And I think that, you know, for a guy who has basically ended droughts left and right, whether it be, you know, first Brit to win a slam in forever, first Brit to win Wimbledon in forever, first Brit to win Davis Cup or help bring Davis Cup home, all these sorts of things, gold medal, hats off, tip the top hat, do whatever you do in Britain. You know, they don't have to smile, but at least maybe the corners of their mouths don't necessarily frown for the, the for the last like 48 hours that would be a tremendous thing and and uh everybody who listens to this podcast knows how i feel about andy murray i think he's just the bee's knees i think he's a good dude so um so yeah congratulations great britain you are the number one davis cup country which is weird in the rankings yeah i mean again all the stuff we said before i think handles there's no still stance there's no there's nothing to convince me that Belgium versus Great Britain was ever going to be the summit of men's tennis, like the Super Bowl of that. Like it, it is what it is because of the format. But Andy Murray, by himself, lifted a country. I, don't, I can't remember a solo effort like this in Davis Cup in quite some undefeated, time. undefeated, and in 2015 won 11 of their 12 points. That's, That's crazy. Ridiculous. That's crazy. That's insane. I mean, and ob- and they wouldn't have gotten through if James Ward hadn't won that one match. I realized against Isner at the beginning. Uh, they might have gotten relegated, for all we know, this year. Um, That's true. They could have played Spain or something in the rele- relegation matches. But but in general, it's been an incredibly impressive year for him. He put them on his back. He made it a goal. Andy Murray, remember, didn't hasn't played Davis Cup consistently through his whole career because there wasn't he didn't see much point in playing in like zonal group three relegation matches against Luxembourg and Lithuania or whatever they were doing previously, except for the minimum to get his. Uh, olympic requirements in but once he did he put himself into it and clearly is a guy comfortable being a leader and that's what that's what he showed here and i think in sort in sort of that leadership way i'm not sure that any of the other big four guys really had to do that ever in davis cup i mean they just sort of posted up and had top 10 teammates who helped them win and andy didn't do that at all so i think in terms of just pure davis cup wins it might be the most impressive that i can remember even novak Novak had Tipsarovich, who was top 10 on his team. And he had Troitsky, who was also like a top 20 player. I mean, like, if you say like top 20, top 30. I mean, look, Landy Murray had to do it without having a top 100 player alongside him the entire time, right? Yeah. That's really, really tough. I mean, to to navigate through. And the thing to remember about winning book, you know, something like Davis Cup or winning Fred Cup. And yes, as Ben said, our critiques about the format and how we want to see Davis Cup and Fed Cup better still stand. So if you haven't heard those, go back and listen to them. So we're just inserting those here. Um, But uh, this isn't just a one-year process. In order to win Davis Cup, you know, and you saw this not just with Switzerland, you saw it with with Serbia, maybe less so with Spain because they were just such a, a, a group one stalwart, that but for especially for Great Britain, this it takes like two, three years to get them from where they were to where they are today, um, to stay in the, the top level, to keep competing, to keep doing it. And I think the other thing, too, to remember for Andy Murray, and I've said this throughout, you know, the last five, six years with respect to, to him. And it's a truth that has crystallized for me uh, with respect to Murray for a long time is, is that he's just a tremendous chaser. If you give him a goal, if you give him a a goal and you tell him he can't do it, you, you, you convince him that he is an underdog of epic proportions, he finds a way to motivate, 
and and to close it out. We saw that with, you know, winning the US Open, winning the gold medal, winning Wimbledon, um, that that and and the struggles post Wimbledon of what happens when when you're not an underdog anymore, when when you it, it's difficult to kind of muster that extra ten percent. Right. But in Davis Cup he was able to do it. Uh and it was it was very cool and, and it was just really neat to see that it was the Murrays, both him and Jamie, who uh who were basically responsible for the weekend. Uh that's pretty dope. So dame that Judy Murray and give her all the cakes. Darn it. So to talk more about uh, not cakes, but I guess the Murray family and perceptions back home, especially with a lot of the criticism of British tennis and the LTA, which has come in the wake of this. It's sort of I find it appropriate, but also just amusing in a sort of like worst case scenario way for them that like this Davis Cup win has shown the spotlight <laughs> brighter than ever on what a failure so much of British tennis is considered to be by those inside of it. Uh, and I have to say, yeah. I've been pretty surprised by some of the stuff that we've I've read. Yeah. Over the, you know, and he's not holding back. No, and he's not holding back. But even just ba- I mean, because even just the basic thing of that Michael Downey, who's the CEO or head of LT- of the LTA has now been in office for two years. For some reason, I still thought it was like eight months <laughs> or, or something. But yeah, it's been two years and nothing's happened. No. Some of the anecdotes from Murray um, and Kiathavong, who the BBC reported um, uh, volunteered to uh, or offered to volunteer at the National Training Center, the, the NTC, and like never heard back from the LTA, which <laughs> seems to me like you should never be turning down Anne Kiathavong when she offers her assistance in anything. Your former number one for a long yeah, time. Her former, your former number one, super personable person, like awesome, badass lady, like get her into your program, figure out a way. Yeah. Um, so that's been pretty eye opening, I have to say, for from myself. Oh, for sure. So to talk about all that, we have a guest from Andy Murray's homeland of Scotland. It is Stuart Fraser, who is a reporter for the Mail Online, who joins us to talk about all sorts of things, Murray, Davis Cup, British tennis, etc. Enjoy. Very pleased to be joined by my pal, Stu Fraser. A tennis writer for the Mail Online, who's uh, native Scotland, or I guess technically the UK, won the Davis Cup this uh, this weekend. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Ben. Or, or, or was it just Dunblane that won it? We're not quite sure. Pretty much just one household, I think, <laughs> yeah. won it. Judy Murray's branch of the fam- of her family tree won a Davis Cup. Well, that's what we're saying. It's not It's not the UK. It's not a, a nation in Scotland. It's not a town in Dunblane. It's not a street. It might not even be a house. I don't know. They might have shared a room when they were younger. One room has won the Davis Cup. No, we have to. We have to. Uh, I guess give due credit a little bit to James Ward, who got one of their points in the in the first tie, uh, who beat John Isner. Uh, I remember it was only two years ago, Stuart. We were watching in Sochi, or trying to watch the two of us finding some really dodgy stream of the uh, U.S. Great Britain first round tie in twenty fourteen. Uh, from the San Diego Padres baseball field, that clay court they built out there. And uh, if you, I don't think if I had told you that uh, within, you know, I don't know, uh, 18, 20 months of that, that Great Britain would be Davis Cup champions, I'm not sure. There would be no reason for me to say that, because why, why would that ever happen? But no. it has. We, we were just happy back then, um, obviously, for James to get that win and then give Andy to close it out. And then obviously that meant we'd retained our place in the world group because that was the first round. So there was no need that year to then play a relegation playoff. Is so that your point, first year in world group in a while? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Since 2008. Yeah. Um, so so that, that was a big win for us. And, and we were just happy to, you know, stay in the world group, retain our place. I think 
we always felt with Andy we could be a good world group team. And um, yeah, if a bit of luck went our way with a draw or whatever else, then we could maybe you know, go a bit further. But um, never did we think uh, that we would be winning the trophy. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's a great achievement for the, the country. I'm I'm t- I'm saying we as if I've won it. It's almost <laughs> yeah. like the 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 famously titled documentary, the day we the day we won Wimbledon, which right. came out after Andy won it. But uh, you know, it just it's it's a huge achievement for the country, and um, yeah, what 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 a moment for British tennis. Remember, without Davis Cup, Andy would never have played a competitive match in Scotland. Yeah, no, he's played. He's only played competitive matches in Scotland because Davis Cup has went there. So that's huge as well. Um, I'm sure you saw the atmosphere um, when when GB beat USA in March, and then again Australia in September. And they love tennis up there, but they don't get much 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 of a chance to see it. Well, so, I remember. So that, I remember even before that when he would have you know zonal relegation ties, or whatever, against Luxembourg and stuff, and he'd be and he'd be tearing up when. Uh, he got all the crowd support up there, just because it, it did clearly mean a lot to him getting to to play there and having the support of, of where he's from. Yeah, there's a, a huge appetite for tennis in Scotland. I remember in 2009 when um, I think GB played Ukraine and it was in Glasgow and Andy had to pull out a week before um, due to injury. And uh, the, the, they still all turned out to watch watch the tennis. There was, I think it was Josh Goodall and Chris Eaton playing that weekend. Who, mm. who weren't household names, but the Glasgow public still uh, still turned out. Huge appetite for tennis. You can imagine what it's like now that Andy's won Olympic gold, uh, the US Open, Wimbledon, and now the Davis Cup. Yeah, I guess let's talk just about Scotland in general, obviously. Stu, you're Scottish, and what, what is what is Andy Murray and I guess the Murray family meant to uh, to Scotland, the Scottish sport, Scottish tennis, or however broad you want to take this? Because he's obviously, I think, been arguably probably one of the most famous Scotsmen worldwide of certainly of our lifetimes. Yeah, no, no doubt, um, it's massive because I remember the sort of big deal everyone made when he sort of broke through at Wimbledon in 2005 when he got to the third round. Um, took David O'Bandy into five sets, and you know, it was a pretty big deal for Scotland to have someone like that in the um, performing so well at Wimbledon. I think six years was it six years before that. I think Miles McLagan, who I can't remember the exact Scottish connection he has, but I think one of his parents is Scottish, and I think he took Boris Becker to five sets, and that was massive at the time, and. Um, now we, we have someone who's winning Grand Slams and um, performing so well on the world stage. So he means a lot to Scotland, um, especially Jamie now as well, who's doing so well. He had that mixed doubles victory in 2007 at Wimbledon, which sort of made his name, but, but now he's performing very well on the circuit. He's an, he's an established top 10 player. And um, what, what Judy's done for tennis as well, not... Not only just brought up um, two very good tennis players and uh, Andy and Jamie. She um she's doing a lot with coaching around the country. She'll jump into a white van packed full of tennis equipment in the back and just drive around the country to far flung places in the north and the south and the east and the west. And just she loves coaching kids. So um, they're really spreading the message all over the country in Scotland. And I think the one thing 
as well about the Murray family. All very down to earth. You, you know what Andy's like as well. Yeah. Same with Jamie, same with Judy. And that's a trait that Scottish people really identify with. And some people, um, especially with Andy, mistake that for perhaps being a bit sullen, being a bit dour. It's not at all. It's, it's, he's just very down to earth. He's a very normal guy. And it's a trait that Scottish people really appreciate. Do you, do you think that in terms of him being appreciated by Scotland, was was it always that way? Was it sort of love at first sight from 05? Because I know at least in the way he's perceived in British media, which I guess is more English media with where stuff is based in London, um, that it's been Murray's had his ups and downs in the press. But in Scotland, was it was it that way too? Or was it more uh, acceptance from the beginning? Yeah, I, th- I think he was fairly accepted from the beginning. I think at the start, um, some people, certainly some people I was speaking um, to um, some friends and stuff, they they weren't sure about him. With the he used to sometimes pull tantrums in the tennis yeah. court, and he, he was just finding his own way in the circuit for a while. And, and he's he's actually mentioned that recently in relation to uh, to Nick Kyrgios. Just in, it takes a few years to sort of find your way and learn how to behave in the court. Um, but when you realise that that's because it's still in him to this day, the, the ability for him to, to blow up all of a sudden at the tennis court and and get very annoyed with himself. But that's part of what makes him such a fighter. And I think once people realise, well, actually, that, that generally actually means he's really up for it, he's given his best, um, I think people sort of accepted that. So, um, obviously, I think the, the difference between maybe Scotland and, and, and England is that the comment in 2006, which was misinterpreted down south, when he joked that um, he was supporting anyone but England at the, the 2006 right. World Cup, I think that obviously uh, did not help him down in England, and it's still to this day it's brought up every year, especially during Wimbledon time. Um, but obviously, north of the border, they, they might quite like him for that. <laughs> yeah. No, I guess, and, and similar to that more recently than that, was obviously he got a little bit of flack for his very late uh, voicing support for the Scottish independence bid, which was a couple of years ago, which I still, as an outsider, find so amazing, even though it was considered oh, a 10-point victory. The fact that 45% of Scotland, I think it was 45 right around there, wanted, yep. wanted out. And yeah. then Glasgow voted with a pretty clear majority to get out of the UK. That still sort of blows my mind that I kind of don't think the English people realized how crazy that was at the moment. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's that I think at that point he'd already won the Olympics and won Wimbledon. So maybe he had a lot more goodwill to be working with or something. So that doesn't seem to have, to have stuck that I can tell. No, it's not. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, it, it was, I, I remember the night it happened. Um, I was still up at that time and that you're checking through your Twitter feed and then, all of a sudden, I looked and I was like, "Oh my! I did not, I did not see that coming." Because he kept so quiet in the issue for for yeah. months um, before that. I remember, so the so the referendum was in September uh, 2014, and in March he'd been asked about it pretty much for the first time in Indian Wells, and he, he'd kind of handled it very well and didn't give much of an opinion on it. He was obviously asked about it during Wimbledon and in the run-up again at the US Open. He'd swerved it. And then all of a sudden, he decided to make his his view public. Um, Yeah, at 1am, six hours before the polls opened. Um, But no, it hasn't hasn't had an effect uh, across the rest of the country. 
um, at the end of the day, while that was his um, belief that that it was best for Scotland to to go independent at the time, it doesn't mean you don't want to compete and and represent GB. So um, he still gives his best when he's playing for GB, and I think people see that. And um, yeah, I, I don't think it's had any sort of negative impact at all. How do you think he is received now among the general British sporting public? Is he now that he's won things and won this and you know him and him and Kim seem to be a real sort of model first couple for for British sports is he is it all sunshine and roses or is there still you think a lingering element of uncertainty regarding him just from what you see from where the various yeah, angles you have on I, him? I think there always will be with him um but it's certainly not as much as it was before um I think people realize like how much he gives in the tennis court, uh, how much of a fighter he is. I mean, look at that effort this past weekend in Ghent, um, and just actually across the whole year. Especially the one I remember is after Wimbledon against France at Queen's. He was really struggling in the last day, having played singles and doubles before that, and he still managed to find a way through it. So, yeah, I think with, um, obviously, the ways if someone's... A general, a member of the general public just decides to watch tennis all of a sudden and sees him maybe throwing the odd um, uh, tantrum or two in the court and, and um, being a bit angry at times. Yeah, maybe they're going to be a bit unsure of him and there is going to be a bit of uncertainty about him. But I think overall now, um, I think people appreciate him for, for what he is. At the end of the day, he's one of, well, there's, there's articles now in the, the couple of days after the Davis Cup final arguing that he is Great Britain's greatest ever sportsman so um, yeah I think people do appreciate him now a lot most people anyway yeah how how is this uh this Davis Cup run perceived I gotta say obviously I don't know if you heard previous episodes but when Courtney and I were leading up to the Davis Cup final between Great Britain and Belgium I think we thought it was a little bit ridiculous that these two countries would be the two left standing in what they brand as the World Cup of Tennis, you know, for men's tennis. And it, it, these are not, by any stance, I don't think you could say powerhouses in the sport. I mean, obviously, Andy's a great individual. But uh, beyond that, there's not much, especially for Belgium. Belgium uh, is not a country that's seen as much of a perennial power in anything. And they definitely probably snuck through some parts of the of the draw that were pretty open for them. And I guess with Andy not having played, you know, I guess France obviously was a, a great team to beat. And France is a perennial power and stuff like that but beyond that without Andy having beaten one of the other big fours or something like that is there any sort of asterisk or understanding that Davis Cup is diminished with this win or is it you think full steam ahead on the on the celebrating I don't think there's an asterisk as such I mean I think people do realize obviously that I mean I I can understand your point there because when Leon Smith the great British captain for example in the weeks up to the Davis Cup final um, instead of being in the ATP Tour at Masters and 500 events, he's at Challengers trying to work out who his British number two is going to be. Yeah. Um, he went to Belgium. There was a challenger over there in October. Uh, the last few weeks he was in South America with Kyle Edmund and James Ward. So that kind of shows you that, okay, that the, the standard of this final maybe wasn't as high as it's been in previous years. And the run, yes, this year, yes, especially for Belgium, I think Goffin admitted. Uh, we, we, some of the some members of the UK press spoke to him in Shanghai last month, and and he admitted that um, 
yeah, perhaps we have been a bit lucky with the the run we've had. Um, obviously, the, the the players, some of the players that have not played. I think I think they played Switzerland first round, and then obviously Federer and Vavrinka um, yeah. didn't play. And, but, then they, and then they played Canada without Ron and Sherpas. So. Yeah. So yeah, but, but that's the way it worked out. So yeah. I I don't think there's an asterisk as such. I think people do understand that. Okay. The Davis Cup has not benefited this year from having all the players, top players, playing in every round. But that's just the way it is at the moment. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's quite an effort for, especially Andy, with the amount of matches he's playing over the course of a weekend to sort of sort of take a country to the title. And as well, although GB have the the world number two at the moment, and he's obviously going to be the favourite in just about every match he plays. The doubles on the, the yeah. Saturday is no given. Um, against France, it was tough. Against Australia, what a match. That's actually one of my favourite matches of the year. Yeah, and Andy and Jamie took on Leighton Hewitt and Sam Groth, which turned out to be Leighton's last Davis Cup match, actually. That was a tough match to come through. And if you don't get these doubles victories, it's very hard because then you are relying on the British number two player to win the fifth rubber. Which is quite a big ask. Yeah, and it's pretty impressive that it never had to happen at any point in this run. They never went down to a fifth rubber. That was always the question mark, is if it came down to and actually with how decently well Kyle Eben played, you know, it would I if it had come down to him versus Bemelmans, I guess, or, or Darcy, uh, it would not have necessarily been hopeless, no, I guess. But but it but it never came it wound up being Andy Murray and occasionally Andy Murray and, and brother. Without uh, yeah. without that one, obviously that one James Ward that, over Isner. Yeah, I mean it's a shame that that was uh, so long ago now because I think people, you know, when they see James maybe receiving the trophy on Sunday, they they might think, well, what has he done? But actually, that win on that Friday night in Glasgow in March was was so crucial, just coming through that to beat Isner. I think it was fifteen thirteen in the fifth. Um, yeah, because that then gave Andy the chance to win. Uh, the tie in the Sunday because obviously the Bryans were playing the, were playing the doubles and that was a big ask in that one. The other part of the coverage that's been going on, which is sort of the, the round criticisms of British tennis that have come out of this title, or at least it's given people a chance to criticize British tennis anew. I guess for people who haven't followed that, uh, Stu, can you sort of sum up what that's been and uh, if you think it's uh, fair or not? So there was a press conference held the, the morning after uh, in a Ghent hotel where, where the Brits were staying. And um, obviously it's uh, meant to be the, this, this triumphant press conference where they speak about the celebrations the night before. And I think they did for a while. But then the topic of the current state of British tennis was brought up. And and the players, um, Andy in particular, were, were a bit more talkative than, than perhaps some would expect them to be. Um, so for a, a good while it descended into just comments in the current state of British tennis, um, the, their feelings and what's not going right at the LTA at the moment, um, the, the National Tennis Centre, which costs £40 million, uh, there was one comment in that, there's, there's not actually many um, many players training there anymore. Um, Andy went one day and the place was pretty much empty, which is quite alarming really, when you have the world number two, going along to train at the National Tennis Centre and there's not many people to have a hit with. Um, so it, it then descended into basically the players giving their comments. Um, I think each player had their say. Um, Leon Smith also had something to say on it as well. Um, 
and obviously the newspapers um, on Tuesday morning in the UK went very big on it. Uh, it's now a big talking point. Um, the LTA have released a statement in response saying the door is always open. They're not really hitting back at all. I don't. I think that's a wise move for them. I don't yeah. think they want to get into a public row as such. But yeah, I suppose in a way it has taken just just a tad of the gloss off um, the victory this past weekend. I don't think it takes the gloss off Andy per se, but I guess, do you think that obviously British tennis, if you subtract... Andy, and I guess further Andy and Jamie from it, it's nothing. I mean, it's definitely not a world group power country for sure. And they might struggle to get people into the main draws of the Grand Slams uh, most of the time on the men's side. And I guess women's hasn't been especially great either. Obviously, Conta had a very an extremely good second half of the year that came out of nowhere. But but overall, are these are these fair criticisms? Should should British expectations be higher? Or is it is there just some reason that, you know, Great Britain isn't producing tennis players that should be accepted, I guess. I don't know. I think it's just very worrying when the players are, are happy to be so public about it, especially after a triumph like that. Um, and, and when the, someone like the world number two speaks so candidly on it, you know, people need to stand up and listen. The, the thing is, at the moment, I think the most worrying um, statistic as such for me is in the last two years at the Junior Grand Slams overseas, away from Wimbledon, there has not been one British boy playing in the singles at the Junior Grand Slams in two years. That is alarming. That is really worrying. Where's the next generation coming from in the boys' side? Um, so I, th- I think, to be honest, that they are fair criticisms. Um, there's a lot of changes going on at the moment with um, performance in British tennis, the performance system we currently have, the um, the appointment of Bob Brett, um, Marion Cilic's former coach, of course, mm-hmm. it was an absolute disaster. He it was just someone who was not suited to this role of, of um, you know, sitting behind a computer. Bob Brett is best on a court coaching. Um, so that's ended. They've now appointed this interim performance director, someone who's Peter Keane, who was previously involved with British Cycling. But um, with Andy Murray's recent comments and him, he's um, he's struggling to understand. And why you would bring someone in like that into a role with, with no sort of tennis expertise. So I think a lot of the criticism, to be honest, is fair at the moment. And just from my chats with different people um, involved in tennis in this country, a lot of people are worried about the future direction. One of my favorite quotes from the weekend, and obviously they were all talking a lot, but was one of the things that you tweeted, which I retweeted, was about uh, Andy, when they're talking about a victory parade. And Andy's saying uh, he wasn't sure if they should have, you know, a parade through London because it might just be them essentially going on a sightseeing tour, waving at buildings with no one there to watch. <laughs> what do you think is the reception to this back home? All of this is is really the LTA and its shortcomings a real national conversation or is it just still within the tennis bubble that the victory and I guess the criticism comes or no, is it I bigger think, than that? I th- yeah, I think it is bigger than that because um, newspapers especially in the football-centric sort of um, coverage we have in the, in the media in the UK, um, pretty much all the daily newspapers today went with um, uh, went with it on the back page or on the front page of the sports supplements, yeah. a big show given to it. Um, I mean, that's not that doesn't happen all that often in this country, so I think that tells you, and I think I, I, we've seen the reaction today um, on Twitter, on the on the 
television, rolling sports news channels. Um, a lot of people are interested in it. Now, Andy's particular comment about him, um, the, the parades having no one to turn out and he'd be waving at built buildings, I thought was very funny and typical of him as dry humour. And, and maybe, yeah, it's not maybe going to be like the Olympics if they went an, an open-top bus parade through London. It might not be quite at that level. Um, it might be different in Dunblane, though. Yeah, for sure. actually, actually, one of the one of the greatest the great scenes when Andy um, returned back home after winning Olympic gold in the U.S. Open. Great scenes in Dunblane, thousands turned out, and not just Dunblane. People were actually driving from all over Scotland to be in Dunblane on the day Andy Murray came home. And I, I don't know if Ben, if you saw the the footage and the pictures from the wedding earlier this year as well. Again, people driving from all over Scotland to be in Dunblane on the day Andy Murray gets married. That's pretty cool. I mean, what, what do you think comes next for Andy and his and his career and his sort of legacy? I mean, obviously, I think him getting knighted. I know very little about knighting, but it seems like a shoe-in <laughs> considering some of the previous people who've gotten it. It's, he seems to have cleared a lot of those necessary bars. And I guess tennis on court, off court, what, what do you think the future holds for Andy uh, short term, next couple of years and uh, longer term? So short term, I think, um, obviously, the, the focus immediately turns to the Australian Open. Um, he is not going to have much an off-season break. He's heading out to Dubai uh, next week for some training. He's actually going to play in a, a cup on the IPTL event in Dubai, in Dubai, the leg over there. He's going to play two days of that. And then um, he's going to mix that in with training. He's then going to come back to London. He's going to hit over here for a while. I think I think he's going to be hitting with Jules Muller actually, who's, okay. who's coached coached by um, Jamie, Jamie Delgado. Delgado. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I think he's very much focused now on getting ready for the Australian Open. It's a tournament w- which he really feels he should have won by now. I think that's what four times he's reached the final over there. Mm-hmm. So he's really focused on trying to get that one um, under the belt, and then obviously in February. Um, his, his first child will come along. He's going to take some time off. Um, and then he'll return in March, I think, all going well. He'll return in March to the Davis Cup. And then I would imagine the focus then for him would be on, on the clay season and, and hopefully getting to the final of Roland Garros, maybe going one better. Um, I think, yeah, I think now he's he's got the Davis Cup. He's got two Grand Slam titles, Olympic gold. I think if you're looking at next year, Australian Open, the clay season, obviously Wimbledon's massive for him, but um, Olympic, the Olympics, I, I reckon a big target for him next year would, would be a medal um, in the doubles with, with Jamie. Mm. Now, the one thing you did mention there, I guess it's sort of the one, I remember when Andy Roddick was playing, he had, he stated at some point along the way that he had four real big goals in his career, and they were winning uh, the U.S. Open, winning Wimbledon, winning the Davis Cup, and getting to be number one. And he got three of the four, obviously. He, like Murray, fell short in se- Well, not like Murray, but he fell short in several uh, Wimbledon finals. And on the, so Andy has three of those himself. Andy Murray has three of those himself now, and the one missing is being number one. I mean, do you think that's something he's gunning for at all, or do you think that's just not something he controls his own destiny on and won't be as concerned with? Because even though he's number two right now, he's nowhere near it. I, th- I think I don't think he will schedule next year thinking right. Where can I get the maximum maximum amount of points? Like obviously, there's ways you can 
um, work your schedule around the 500 tournaments to make sure you get as much points from them as possible. I think he's got right. a, got a zero pointer at the moment for for um, not playing a 500 after the US Open, uh, which is one of the, the sort of rules in the ATP rulebook. But I don't think he's going to look at the schedule next year and say, how do I become number one? I think at some point in his career he would like to, but I mean, come on, look at Novak Djokovic's ranking points total at the moment. Unless he starts to have a couple of poor results and um, you know fails, goes out early in Oz for some reason and does the same again that maybe Roland Garros or Wimbledon, then Andy might look at it and say, okay, there's four thousand points of of Djokovic's total. Maybe I can you know make some headway here and catch up with him. But I think there's there's no way I, I think he's looking at next year and thinking I want to become number one. I think. The, the, the focus is very much on these sort of titles Oz maybe doing well at Roland Garros and, and then the Olympics again. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Stu. Appreciate you being here. Anything else you want to add or people should know about Andy and Scotland, tennis, Britain, anything on the, any of those circles? Well, I just think one of the things that, that sort of means a, lot, means a lot to me, obviously I grew up playing tennis in Scotland and it got to this time of year um, when the weather's not very good through the winter and um, a lot of places in Scotland don't have any indoor courts and how can you play through the winter um, if you don't have indoor courts? Um, there's a place in the north of Scotland, that actually in 2007, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, Ben, Inverness. Mm-hmm. It, it was the fastest growing city in Western Europe in 2007 and eight years later, there are still no indoor tennis courts up there. If you've a, a child, a kid who's showing good promise in Inverness, they have to drive about a hundred miles um, down one of the most dangerous roads in Britain because of the weather during the winter to play indoor tennis. So the the thing that concerns me most at the moment is that I I I I think we are at the moment, and I hope we don't come to regret this in future years. In that that we've missed an opportunity here. Great time to capitalise on all the success, what Murray's doing, but if we don't have facilities being built, especially indoors in a place like Scotland where the appetite is so big at the moment for tennis, um, we've missed possibly a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-millennium opportunity, perhaps. And you said there was some sort of referendum going on right now, is that right? Or some sort of vote being held soon on some tennis funding in Scotland? You're absolutely right. Judy Murray has plans for a tennis centre. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to, you know, have a base to work from and um, basically just build another indoor facility in Scotland, which is, is badly needed. And um, it goes to the the it goes through for the the sort of committee which decide whether to award planning permission or not next week. And that's a big moment because when someone like Judy Murray is doing so much good work in Scotland. Um, you know, if she wants to build a base and have somewhere where she wants to encourage children to, you know, fulfil their potential, I think, you know, she should be given that opportunity. But it's up to the planners next week. So uh, fingers crossed. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Stu. Do you have any sort of uh, outro song to pick to play you out here? Some sort of something Scottish in some way, I would imagine. Oh, you put me in the spot. I mean, my, my abiding memory of Ghent, actually, it felt like you were, at, I don't know if you know of it, Ben, but the Tomorrowland Music Festival. <laughs> it's a massive dance music festival in Belgium every year. And that's what it felt in this warehouse in the outskirts of Ghent, which was situated beside an Ikea, 
on an industrial estate. Oh. The 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 music inside all weekend it was, was it was like a rave in there. So I'd, I'd have to pick something which has got a, a good beat to it and, and gets the head bopping. Any uh, any specifics on there? I know I know for those of you who don't know, Stu, you were quite the quite the you know music head bopper DJ person yourself. I don't know if yeah. those days are completely behind you, but uh... no, the well, the the DJ days are behind me, but I've still got that sort of old rave instinct in me. So yeah, I, I have picked one. I've just thought of one which was played this weekend. Safri Jewel played alive. All right, that'll work. Thanks very much, Stu, for being here. Appreciate Cheers. it. Thanks, Ben. So thank you very much, Stu. And now we should move on to one of our favorite off-season pursuits, which is our mailbag, which has been filling up with some pretty good stuff in recent weeks. And we hope that you guys continue to fill it for us by sending us your questions, tweet them, send, send us to them on email, or the best two ways. Our email is nochallengesremaining at gmail.com. Uh, those are the best two ways. And here are some of them from you guys. You ready to dive in, Courtney? Diving. All right, here we go. This is a first question from Sarah Landau. It's a Twitter question. She asks us, what were your favorite press conference moments of 2015? Funny, awkward, or otherwise memorable? Courtney? I have to say that um, I've been doing this now, like what? Going to press conferences for like six years, six, seven years now. And they all, all the years run together. Yeah. All the tournaments run together. So it, the, before we got on the call, Ben and I were both kind of like, Ooh, like, did that happen this year? Did that happen last year? What happened this year? It was kind of nutty. But for me, there were, uh, you know, probably three, maybe four standout moments. Um, the first was the Serena Williams Indian Wells press conference, the pre-tournament press conference. Yes, yes. Um, I've just never been in a press conference like that ever. That felt like before. a big international news event. Exactly. I mean, the obviously it was Serena returning to Indian Wells after her over decade long boycott of the tournament. Um, and there was a lot of anticipation, a lot of international media flew in for it. Um, and, uh, you know, I am I mean, Ben can probably say this as well. We never really when we go to a press conference, especially the press conferences that we intend to go to, have to worry about getting a seat. Yeah, it doesn't happen much. Most press conference main. Maybe after rooms, a Grand Slam final, maybe maybe but even then you kind of figure unless it's like a really small one like the french open can get a little tight yeah um aussie can get can get pretty tight pretty small uh, room there but uh yeah Uh, so for pre-tournament press it was intense um and uh that whole press conference was just a a sight to behold i i don't think that i'll i'll see a press conference, a similar press conference until one of those big, great names retires. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, it felt like a retirement type caliber of uh, press conference, like the sort of enormity of it and the, the anticipation that had been building up for that for so long with Serena. Obviously, we did several shows around, you know, her going back to this and it was a weeks long story and it was a very climactic moment in a way that you don't often get in a press conference for sure. Exactly. So, so I got Serena uh, Indian Wells as one of mine. Another one, very small highlight, came also at the end of Indian Wells, uh, at the final press conference, uh, at least the women's press conference in Indian Wells, which was Simona <laughs> Halep failing to lift the trophy. That was adorable. 
<laughs> which was adorable. So Simona Halep wins Indian Wells. She comes into the press conference room. As most people who watch Indian Wells know, uh, you get awarded this ginormous Baccarat trophy. And it's actually incredibly heavy. It's a massive piece of crystal. And it's an awkward shape, too. And it's an awkward shape because it's when you look down on it, it's like stars, I think, which are the shape yeah. of the BNP Paribas uh, logo. Logo, And uh, so Halep was asked by our good friend Aki uh, from Japan uh, if she could lift the trophy. And Halep has this look, and you can see this all on YouTube, but uh, Halep has this look of like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm real super strong. I can lift it. And she tries and fails. And she's like, nope, can't fails do it. Fails completely. Like, doesn't <laughs> completely. Barely, doesn't it doesn't get move. off the table, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't move. So so that was one of the funnier ones. Um, and then uh, Maria Sharapova in Singapore. Uh, referencing her tennis TV subscription still is just a moment that makes me crack up. I just, I don't know where. Explain that for people who don't remember. So Maria Sharapova in Singapore was asked, uh, you know, how much she watches tennis, whether she intends to, you know, uh, scout her potential semifinal opponents. And she says, yes. And she says, you know, I actually have a tennis TV account. And she kind of stops and says, "I, I actually have no idea how I got that account pretty clearly referring to having to having to order a tennis TV subscription in order to watch Grigor Dimitrov yeah. uh, in his matches last year, which she obviously doesn't need anymore. But it was amazing. It was humorous. I think I laughed really, really loudly. And uh, it just made my day. That's, I loved it. It's pretty tremendous. I have a few small ones. Uh, the one, you picked the big one. Obviously, the most momentous, memorable was the Serena one. But a couple other small things that happened. One of the main ones that I remember is Nick Kyrgios at Wimbledon. Before all the Varenka stuff happened, with his main controversies, the press had sort of turned on him very clearly, the Aussie press. We hadn't seen much since uh, the Australian Open, at which he was adored. I mean, the, the way that the Aussie press went from really, really glad-handing and near slurpy with Kyrgios to like immediate adversarialness was bizarre how quickly everything turned. And Kyrgios's, uh like brattiness and petulance about it was really amusing. And so uh, my favorite exchange was about they were talking about various things that the microphones picked up Kyrgios said. And they asked him about saying dirty scum at some point during his match. And he said, oh, I called myself that. And the questioner said, why did you refer to yourself as dirty scum? And Nick just went, because I can. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought it was amazing. And I started laughing pretty loudly. And no one else was. And it was pretty great. It was Uh, an intense press conference. That was actually the one before the real. Oh, that was before? There was a couple in there with Kyrgios that just got really back and forth. Like Like it was a deposition. Yeah, oh, about denying it. It was like, uh, it was about when they thought he he tanked, which we ranted about. Um, Right. They said, here's the question, Nick. Against Gasquet. Yes, here's the question, Nick. Do you want to deny it? Nick, no. Question, so you don't want to deny the accusation? Kyrgios, deny what? Question, the accusation being put forward that you didn't try that game in the second set. No, of course I tried, says Nick. That game you're saying you tried. And it just goes on and on and on. And it was uncomfortable. It goes on for like a really, really long time. Like grilling him in the House of Lords or something. It was nuts. Like the guy might as well have had like a powdered wig on. Yeah. It was like, dude, it's sports. Chill out. It really was. And it was a weird way. And then Kyrgios, I thought, was pretty sympathetic in that. And then... They yeah. to flush that sympathy down the toilet pretty quickly thereafter in the following month. Yeah. Um, and the last one I have comes from Cincinnati when Novak Djokovic was asked about uh, 
doing comebacks um, and compared to Serena Williams. And he said, I guess I did Serena today too. And then <laughs> says, didn't set, doesn't sound right. And then stenographer Julie piped up and we've had on the show pipes up and says that she added an A. So he did a Serena. That was just a neat yes. thing. That was very nice of Julie. That was very good. Because it was awesome. The one other thing that doesn't show up in the transcript is when Caroline Wozniacki got asked about Rory McIlroy injuring his foot or leg or whatever, uh, playing soccer that forced him out of a tournament. Um, And she just like stared at the moderator and said nothing. Yes, I recall that as well. well, That was pretty great. Was that the... Oh, that was... Was that... No, I'm thinking last. See, again, this is when they all bleed together. About yeah. was it last year when somebody was like, "I'm just gonna with Caroline at the U.S. Open." I was like, "I'm just gonna address the elephant in the room and like ask some question about Rory." And the rest of us were like, "We were that was not the elephant in the room." We're, <laughs> I don't understand. We're done. We've done this since the French Open. Yeah, like it's your elephant. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, it's been. I don't know. What's your, what's your, how would you grade press conference land this year, Ben? I give it a solid, solid B plus. It wasn't terrible. I mean, that yeah. was, the one other thing that I forgot to mention is I really got, <laughs> I really enjoyed when Serena at the French Open said, uh, no tea, no shade, referring to Sarah <laughs> Arani's server. <laughs> Serena in general, Serena's, Serena's clearly, Serena been, was ace. Serena's clearly been watching RuPaul's Drag Race lately, which is tremendous, and has been incorporating more and more of the sort of catchphrases into her. And treeing. And yeah. And tre- she says treeing a lot, tree-ing. which makes me happy. Yeah. Um, and I also want to give a a very honorable mention to um, Roberta Vinci at the oh, US yeah. Open because her press conference is post final and then obviously post uh, beating Serena after the semifinal. Those were just raucous. I mean, it, it was shades of Lena. Yeah. Um, in terms of just the self-awareness in a lot of ways, the unintentional hilarity, you know, just being asked, you know, did you did you believe that you could that you could pull this upset off? No, 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 no. no. And you know, that's an incredibly disarming uh, admission to make yeah. in a room full of uh, of uh, you know reporters who are trying to make sense of. The thing that they just no, saw. Totally. And just going to memorable, the Serena press conference after she lost to Vinci obviously was memorable. Yes. In terms of how short it was and the, her obvious disgust with herself and the world, um, all of that. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. No, it was, I, I agree with you. B plus. B, B plus. Good. Uh, we have another question that sort of relates a little bit to that. And this question is from Linda from Monterey, California. Sort of near you, you, Courtney. Sort of near. Sort of near, who says, at the risk of sounding like a tennis Scrooge, I don't understand why you both frequently say that tennis needs a higher profile. The stories like, sorry, that storylines like Serena's calendar slam quest and Nick Kyrgios's bad behavior are great for the sport because tennis needs to grow and attract more viewers. To me, Serena's quest for history was grossly overhyped by the media. Like Serena, I grew weary of the incessant questions about how she felt playing Venus or how she was dealing with the pressure. And I wasn't interested in tracking her every move on and off the court. All of that was a distraction from the tennis. And sadly, it was a big factor in Serena's failure to win the calendar Grand Slam. As for the men, with Nadal currently out of slam contention, the media is already steering the GOAT discussion, greatest of all time discussion, to Djokovic catching Federer at 17 slams which is premature to say the least. 
Am I alone in believing that tennis doesn't need to become any bigger or louder or more hyped up than it already is? Put another way, could you each describe what you want pro tennis to be like ideally? How big would the ATP and WTA tours be? Would all matches have Davis Cup-like atmospheres? How much room would there be for introverted champions like Borg, Edberg, Sampras, et al., who simply let their rackets do the talking? Thanks, Linda. Courtney, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a, a um, kind of tension between, and I know this because I am inherently uh, and naturally a member of so many kind of niche uh, fandoms. Yeah. Like I, the mainstream frightens me. I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy things that everybody loves. So to me, like things that like kind of small groups of people love are really, really interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm a member of those fandoms outside of tennis. The difference is that within tennis, this is also my job. Yeah. And this is how I get paid. This is how I make my, how I pay for food and, you know, all these sorts of things. So um, in that way, of course, my desire is to see tennis to be in a place where financially um, it is a stable market for everyone involved, not just the players and the tournaments and, and the tours, but also everybody that's involved in it. And selfishly, that does mean, you know, media members yep. um, and things. And so for us, it, it is very difficult to be a tennis writer, um, not because the sport itself is a tough one to, to cover. It's not. It's great. It's exciting. It's wonderful. The personalities are far and away better than the sports personalities like that exist in other sports. I'm sorry. The access is so much better too. The access is also better. I mean, they're, they're, they're intelligent. They're um, well-spoken. They're deep thinkers. They're willing to, to, to go places where I don't think that a lot of, especially in America, um, pro athletes are willing to go. Yeah, at least you know? a lot of them are. At least a lot yeah. of tennis players. A lot of them are. So it's, it's pretty great as a gig, but to do it, and be paid for it is difficult. And and that's not just for the writers. That's also people who are just in the industry of it. You know, the people that make tournaments run. Um, so much of tennis is involved, is, is based on volunteers, right? Like tennis tournaments. I mean, volunteers are what make them work. What other big sport is that the, the case? You know, like I would just like to see more money in tennis. And the only reason that the only way the tennis gets more money as if it has a bigger platform, if it occupies more of the, you know, whether it's a, you can talk market to market, but more of the global kind of mind space and exists as a platform that sponsors want to attach themselves to, that sponsors want to pay uh, to be a part of, uh, that TV deals become incredibly lucrative for major networks to buy into tennis. Mm -hmm. uh, these are things that make the sport stable. And, and when you can make it, where um, it is a lucrative a lucrative sport to be a part of, then you attract the best people to be a part of it, which means that on the whole, you get a better product. And um, that's kind of where I personally come from uh, with respect to wanting tennis to be bigger. And also there is part of it that's like, you know, here's this thing that I love of, and I spend my career evangelizing it. Of course, I want more people to be a, to, to to adore it and want to love right. it, and that doesn't mean that like the actual sport changes at its core. I mean, I think that the, that 
you know, you are going to get those Borgs and you are going to have the introverted uh, athletes or tennis players, just like you'll have the extroverted stars. What you want is diversity within both the ATP and the WTA in terms of the personalities and the types of players that exist. But you cannot have diversity um, in terms of styles and personalities when there is no money. Because if there is no money, then everyone chases that money and it becomes like everybody kind of like fits a mold in order to get it, if that makes any sense. Like there's no room for risk. Um, There's no room for like the Curioses of the world, for example, or the Pekoviches of the world when you don't... um, kind of allow for financial stability when they're so reliant on individual sponsors to pay their own bills. So the more stable the sport is, the more prize money that they're getting, the more money that like, you know, staff members are getting tournament members, um, employees, all this sort of stuff, just the healthier the sport is and the better the sport is. I just, I don't really see that there's a downside to that at all. No, I completely agree. And I I think that, in terms of the introverted champions, I mean, Serena selling out tickets to the U.S. Open final weeks in advance means that there's a full stadium to watch Flavia Panetta yep. win it. I mean, one, I think a rising tide floats all boats in tennis in a huge, huge way. I mean, the rising prize money has been amazing for players. I forget if I brought this up on the show or not before, but I've been marveling at this uh, career career prize money all-time standings list the w that the atp has and like david ferrer is number seven all time on this list he has really? yes all time wow. all time it's number seven david ferrer burdich number 10 like these are people Jeez. who are not fit selling out any stadiums on their own sorry they're just not maybe like a davis cup stadium in prague for burdich or something but that's about it and they have been able to draft off of in the nascar sense of it the successes of these other guys in the sport who have been selling out the stadiums who are people like federer who's being getting discussed as greatest of all time or Djokovic in that discussion or even curios who's drawing eyeballs and getting segments for tennis on you know pardon the interruption and around the horn and other mainstream sort of more shouty press sections that tennis doesn't often hit and that's louder tennis and that's equaling payoff for them so not that you, Linda Tennis fan, have to be invested in David Ferrer's bank account, but know that he has been a he, he's a quiet, quote unquote, introverted beneficiary of the loudness. Someone like Sam Stoser gets record prize money for winning the U.S. Open or some you know multi million dollar check. She's not selling out stadiums. She's not on the cover of many magazines or doing anything super promotional, but she's still a beneficiary of it. And and similarly, I mean like. Courtney, I think, obviously, right about the media. Yeah, as media, we, we want to be big news. I mean, nobody wants to be uh, writing about something that nobody cares about. When Curios came up, and I wrote some ridiculous number of stories about the Curios, they're not ridiculous, but like four or five in the course of like 10 days, that was good for my business and showed an interest in the sport that was there internationally. And that's uh, something that it's hard to hard to say is a bad thing i mean niche is is good and i think the niche i think tennis is great in that it allows for niche pockets still i mean if you want to if you're following you know most of the tour most of the year you are in a small niche 
very small. Very small. If you're and, listening and to Twitter NCR, amplifies it. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like if you listen to NCR, you're part of the niche. Yeah. Right. I mean that that's just the bottom line. And um and you know, there's no way around that. And it's great. It's super fun to be you know, to love a band that you go to whenever they're in town. And when you go and see them at this tiny venue, you know, all the other fans and it's, it's like this very heartwarming thing. But I think that if you were to ask the fans or um, not the fans, I'm sorry, if you were to ask the band, they'd be like, yeah, I mean, it'd be cool if we could sell out Wembley. Like, I mean, they would like to have the money because the money allows them to continue to do the things they do. And, I think that not to get super weird about it and and not to obviously complain at all about our jobs and what we do, because if I didn't want to, I left a a very lucrative career to be a tennis reporter. Like it's not about money for me, Uh, but um, it is for a lot of other people. And I I just know that, that, um, and I don't mean this just for media. I mean it from, you know, like one of the ancillary, not ancillary effects, one of the, the direct effects of all of the tournaments leaving the States mm-hmm. and going to South America and whatever is basic unemployment. Those are a lot of jobs yeah. uh, within, you know, America that, that we've lost. Now, obviously, those have been relocated elsewhere, so it's fine. I mean, that's a big boon to, you know, South America, to China, etc. Um, but, you know, people do need to get paid to do to produce this product that you love so much and um when you don't get paid enough or when the incentive is not enough then what's to stop all of these top quality people who are so good at what they do whether they are part of uh members of the media or they're uh you know uh people who run tournaments or are in communications and pr what's to keep them in tennis why wouldn't they go and take a a paycheck that's twice as much at the nfl or Major League Baseball right. or hockey or uh, Premier League. Like, why why cover tennis at all, you yeah. know? And that's where it begins to concern me. Um, and so that's why I wish that tennis were a bigger sport and there would just be something that is amazing about, yeah, just like if you didn't have to talk about attendance numbers all the time. Like, if it was just like, yeah, tournaments sold out all the time. That'd be dope. That'd be amazing. And that would all be good. So we just want tennis to do well, basically, is it? And and niche can be can be death, or at least shrinking, or small, all of which go into the same thing. It's how capitalism works, for better or worse. You gotta go big or die. Our next question is from Mike, who asks us: uh, My boyfriend and I had a debate and thought it would be fun to get your opinion. Who do you think the next new major champs are for the men and the women? He thought Muguruza. I thought Halep, and we don't follow men's tennis well enough to have an actual opinion. Thoughts? Does I, does Aggie have any hope? Does Aggie have any hope, Courtney? Is she your pick? Who you got? That's a great. It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I I still will pick. I will stick with my pick for probably the last couple of years, and I'm gonna say Simona. Okay. I still just think that that. She has it. I mean, obviously, Muguruza made a made a pretty big play this year in terms of putting herself in the conversation. But I feel like after two years with Halep, I feel like she's putting she's at least has the better track record at this point of putting herself in a position to uh, take advantage where a draw breaks apart, which uh, arguably she should have done in New York. 
she's she's getting there and her all court game. I mean, she's just I just feel like she's right there. I feel like with Muguruza, there's a lot of potential there. I mean, I think she's a great pick as well. Uh, between those two, they would probably be my be my picks before Aga. And then for the men, is Aga in your top three? Um, you know what? I would say yes okay. because um, she's consistently been able to put herself in that position at Wimbledon. That's true. Wimbledon is um, shot. Yeah, it's going to be at Wimbledon. It's not going to be anywhere else. And um, she's put herself there. And, you know, again, this is the whole argument with Aga all the time, which is that she just has to figure out a way to get to the quarterfinals without killing herself. You know, she gets, she finds herself in very uh, precarious situations early in tournaments. You know, she ends up playing three setters when she doesn't need to. And her game style in straight sets is already a strain to do it over three sets in back-to-back matches. That's never good. So if she can finally get herself to into position where she gets into the deep stages of a tournament of a, of a major and, you know, has a, a marginally full tank of gas, I think she's got a shot for sure at Wimbledon. Okay. Women's wise, I will pick Muguruza. I think, I think she's just shown a lot of big match presence and has played really well at the slam. She seems to get up for slams. I mean, like her slam track record in 2015 was great she didn't play i mean she lost a, a very tight match after a pretty rough summer at the u.s open to kata who was playing great in the fall um and then she obviously made wimbledon final quarters of french again lost a great match to serena at the australian open um she seems to be just peaking at the right times in a way that how isn't that's Hall- a very Hall- good point. Had so many flame outs slams that i'm picking muguruza for now I, I think that you have to give consideration further down the list to people like Benchich. If Benchich considers to con- continues to accelerate and grow, um, she can win one. You know, next year doesn't sound crazy. I mean, let me ask that question, Corinne. Do you think we'll have it at first time Slam champ in 2016? I do. I think so too. I do. I I, I definitely think that 2016 you could see a new champion. That's probably where I would put my money. Is that you will, as opposed to that you won't. I think that with the Olympics uh, and the schedule in complete disarray and, and a lot of kind of interesting questions going into 2016, you know, where is Serena at this resurgent Maria? I think that she's really um, keyed herself up for 2016. Well, um, Halep, I think um, is, is back to being better on, on, on her way. Um, Petra Muguruza, there's a lot going on um, in, in 2016. I think that you will see a new one. And with the Olympics, you know, landing right between Cincinnati and Toronto, which is weird. That throws a curveball into what the U.S. Open might look like. Yeah. Um, so that might be the one where you see something surprising happen, or not, or or maybe everybody's so tired that that you know it's uh it's pretty a, stri- a pretty straightforward thing for the top players. But um, yeah, I'd say so. I think if I think if history tells us anything on this question lately, it's that it's very tough to predict. I mean, I think you know we see that the, the last correct answer to this question was Flavia Panetta, which nobody would have gotten right. And so players who are in this, what makes what makes the WTA so fun? I mean, you could tell me the next correct answer would be any number of players, and I would believe you. I mean, like looking at the rankings, like Pliskova, Baczynski. Ben Kerber. Kerber, yeah. Wozniacki is still in there. Madison Keys. Uh, go further down, like a Svitolina, even like a Makarova or something. These yeah. are all like plausible. Pavlyuchenkova has had been very streaky. She could get one someday. For Sloan, sure. I mean, Sloan, you look back. They're going, Lissiki yeah. at Wimbledon. These are all like very plausible things. Um, That's the thing. I mean, yeah. you have a tour where the first time champions we've seen recently, Flavia Panetta, Marion Bartoli, 
the whatever 2011 where it was four first time champions with the Sozer Kovitova is that Lena there no Francesca uh Lena no, that was before, Lina. before that was Kim at the LC who hadn't won that. that's right and and Kim so it you know things can happen yeah um and if so long as you've shown the talent and so many of the girls the WTA girls have it's you know the the potential is there the minute drop falls apart um which is to say that the minute that you know Serena or uh, Maria, or even a Venus uh, loses early, um, it becomes a really, really wide open thing um, in a lot of ways. But so do you think, though, you will see a first time winner for the men in 2016? Absolutely not. (laughs) Like, I'm looking at the men's rankings now. And it's just such a different feel to it. I mean, like I mentioned these two guys before, Ferrer and Burdich, it's bringing a lot of prize money. It would, again, they put themselves in semifinals, like I bet they'll each probably make like a semifinal of a slam at some point in 2016 but they're just the finishing ability of these guys has been non-existent nisha Corey is the next rankings wise uh, then you have gasquet songa then i get to the block the next three are a little more interesting to me isner anderson and ronich i think could all go on a run at somewhere and possibly get like a they wouldn't seem most like the most ridiculous and then you have total wild cards like tomic and pair short answer no like, I just, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. I realize that Marin Cilic won the 2014 U.S. Open not that long ago. But, yeah, no, I'm not seeing – I'm not buying surprise in 2016 on the men's side. How about you? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't see it. I mean, I still – in terms of the next men's winner, I still put my money on Nishikori. Okay. Um, But uh, that is still – it feels like three years away. You know, it doesn't feel like next year, and it doesn't even feel like the year after. But uh, but we'll see. I, I, I just, I don't know. I just don't see it. Speaking of Nishikori, his cohort, which I think pretty much includes him, Ronich, and Dimitrov, really had a bad 2015. Yes. That was just rough. That was generation next, quote-unquote, on the ATP, and they just all fell. Yeah, because I, I the frustrating thing on, on that is that they had all three of them had built up such great momentum last year. Yeah. You know, Nish Corey doing what he did, Raonich finishing in top 10 and making the world tour finals, Dimitrov barely missing out on the world tour finals, uh, you know, and, and he looked, you know, like he was going to continue on his way. His year was to me the most disappointing, obviously Definitely. of all of them. He finished number uh, 28. This year. Yeah. Wow. That's poor. Yeah. Um, uh, for his talent level, especially and uh, Raonic, obviously beset by by injuries and and ill timed injuries at yeah. that, but you know he's split now with with Ivan Lubacic, which is I thought pretty surprising. Going into 2016, I thought that their their partnership was really really great, so that was a bit surprising. So I, yeah, I mean I I still put my money on Nisha Corey, but it's yeah, it's tough, you know, because at least with the women, um, it there hasn't been consistency of Generation Next. I mean, arguably the most consistent of that generation has been Benchich mm-hmm. in terms of just showing gradual progression at such a young age. But every year I feel like they've been able to pass the baton to somebody else yeah. or even mid-year. Like this year, Madison had it. Then she passed it on to Murutha, um, uh, who passed it on to Benchich, who passed it back to Murutha. I mean, there's been kind of always somebody in generation next to to really be excited about at any given moment. Um, and the guys, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a little that's rough. I think it's one of the biggest stories of this decade of tennis, really, is this generation being an, of the ATP being a complete no-show. I mean, really, they're not—they're nowhere to be found. Like I said before on some previous show, I have this stat that somebody tweeted, and again, I forget who, 
Um, but do credit you know who you are uh, about Novak Djokovic being the youngest person to have won a Masters right now in the ATP. That's Ugh. insane because he's almost 29. That's crazy. Anyway. There. Who is it for the women? Uh, if you count like a major, like a Masters, Benchich has won Canada. Yeah, you know, Premier like fives and Premier mandatories is how you do equivalency for that. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do that, I mean, there's a lot of younger players in Novak. I mean, like, uh, Muguruza won Beijing. So right. I would count. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, our last question today comes from Jessica B., who asks us, I've only been a tennis fan for a few years and I never play. I still cannot figure out which is the ad side and which is the deuce side. So my question is, which is the, which side is the ad side? Which is the deuce side? And what's the difference or the point? First of all, thank you very much, Jessica B. Because for the longest time, up until maybe a few years ago, uh-huh. I've been really embarrassed to ask this question. But I didn't play tennis, so I didn't know either. Yeah. And... um. I feel like this is a very like on the American in American commentary we don't actually refer to it as much as like internationally as ad and do side like it's not it doesn't come up as much as when I listen to like British commentary. Well, you talk about it. You always talk about it when you're talking about serve direction. To to answer this question, first off, um, ad side. I'm sorry. Let's start with do side. Do side is the side of the court you stand on when the score is deuce, i.e., the right half of the court for each person. So it's of the side that where a righty hits their forehand, a lefty hits their backhand. It's the right side of the bottom of your screen on TV, and the top left are both deuce side. The other sides, bottom left on your screen and top right on your screen, are ad side where you serve, where it's uh, the ad side when when it's ad, and that comes up mostly when talking about like how a lefty serve is especially good going out wide to the ad side. Or something, which is true for lefties. They can spin it that way. And so, like Kvitova yep, yep. and Red and Nadal both have a lot of success serving on the ad side to righties' backhands. That's it. But yep. yeah, I, I get that with the lingo. I think we, I think we're pretty good in tennis for not having too much lingo. Do you like crazy. lingo or do you not like lingo? I hate Are you it. Pro in, lingo. I hate it in sports. I don't understand most of all in gymnastics. Oh. They every single thing after some past person who did it like uh-huh. i just will understand none of that i had a live blog at gymnastics once for the times uh it, during the 2012 olympics and i did not use any of those terms because i did not know what they meant and i just said like so and so just went on the balance beam he or she he or she it's only girls in balance beam she did not fall her score was <laughs> x <laughs> like that was about it i wasn't gonna be like oh you know she uh uh you know, Mochianu'd into a Shannon Miller before Carrie Strugging. <laughs> and they're all like tough to spell Russian and Romanian names anyway that I wouldn't mess with. In, so. in other words, what you're saying is maybe don't tune into the New York Times live blog during the Rio Olympics or maybe, for gymnastics coverage. Or maybe do. Or maybe do. <laughs> oh, that was tough. They had to watch it on the BBC stream because NBC wasn't showing it live. Boo, NBC. Boo, NBC. So, there we go. Those are our questions. Thank you guys very much for joining us on this question and Stu Fraser episode of NCR. Uh, if you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter 
at NCR underscore tennis. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Send us a question. We'll be doing more questioning shows coming up. No challenges remaining at gmail.com. And you can also subscribe to us on any podcasting feed or app and leave us reviews on iTunes and any other service, which we appreciate there. Courtney, rant rave time. You got anything burning? Uh, not burning, but something that I'm very excited about. Okay. Um, so when I was a kid growing up in my super white suburban town, um, as one of the poor kids that went to my schools, mm-hmm. um, I was enamored by the concept of string cheese <laughs> because all the white kids, like the middle class to rich white kids always had, cause they got like, they packed, they got their lunches packed right. by their moms and families and whatever. And I was on like government lunch. Um, so I always just ate at school. So the idea of like a brown bag lunch is like incredibly foreign to me. Like I don't, that was never my reality until I got to high school. And then even then I didn't brown bag it. I just paid for my own lunch. Um, but in elementary school and middle school, that was it. So, um, if you do government lunch, like you don't, you just get the government lunch, which is the free lunch. Uh, so at brunch, like the recess between the first two periods and the third and fourth period before noon, um, at least in my school district, uh, you're kind of at a loss. Like there wasn't like, unless you were given money to go to the vending machines to go buy something to eat, like you kind of just like hung out for 15 minutes and you were really hungry by the time lunch came around, which is why I never complained about government lunch because it was pretty tasty. But yeah, but all my friends had string cheese (laughs) and they would eat it so like delicately. And I would just kind of look at them and be like, what the F is this that you're eating? Pulling it strand by strand, you mean? Yeah, strand by strand. It took them 15 minutes to eat, you know, one, like, log of string cheese. So, and I never, like, our family couldn't, or my parents and my family just didn't really feel, like, justified in buying, like, what the hell is string cheese? Like, to a bunch of Asian people, they're like, that's weird. (laughs) Um, So we never had it. So it's only been since I've been an adult and it's like a memory that's like really <laughs> like um, hidden in or just like placed away in my brain. Like I just never think about it. But every once in a while I'll go to Trader Joe's and I'll buy like I'll just randomly be like, oh, string cheese and I'll buy it. And every time I do, it is awesome. Like it is so tasty. It is salty and creamy. It's fun to eat if you're kind of in a rush, as sometimes I am in the mi- middle of playing video games and I'm trying to eat a thing of string cheese between the time it takes for it to load. Um, you know, you just bite it and eat it, and it's fine. You don't have to do the whole string che- cheese thing. But yeah, it's I- like this weird thing that is like so weirdly decadent and foreign to me and I love it and I'm in the midst of of killing a pack of Trader Joe's string cheese right now and it's great for those of people who don't know I'm thinking I'm hoping that string cheese is not made it beyond our borders <laughs> um can you explain what string cheese is it's it's mozzarella it's mozzarella yeah, yeah it's mozzarella cheese that has been kind of um made into these like I don't want to say log because that sounds like um, really disgusting, but just like a long stick. Yeah. Um, and they're individually packaged and you get them and they're very easy to kind of throw into a kid's lunch they're or the whatever. Size of like a, a pen. Yeah. Like a, like a thick pen. Yeah. Um, and you open up, you pull the thing and you open up the cheese and you can kind of peel away layers of mozzarella cheese. And it's, I don't know, like it's, I guess weirdly American, but I, I don't know. It, it's something about it just makes me feel like whenever I eat a thing of string cheese that like, I've progressed in my life. Like, like I'm better off now than I was, you know, back when I was a kid or something that I can afford to buy string cheese now. I don't know. I love this. I love that string cheese is aspirational. I love that. 
it can be. This is my thing. I mean, they're just they're. I mean, I was thinking about it earlier this week about like different foods like that. That to me, when I was a kid, I always felt like, man, like only the rich kids eat that. And like, if I can eat it, like that's that'll be when I made it. Like when I was a kid, there were these things called fun fruits, okay, made by Sunkist that were like these little jelly like fruity things that basically were candy, but somehow Sunkist like marketed them as being like the snack food to kids that are like full of high fructose syrup. And like, we never got to buy them. Like my family, Lunchables. Lunchables. I was going to, I was going to mention that right after this. Lunchables Lunch- like the thing, yeah. the nonsense thing for rich kids. For because rich kids. like they had so much actual, f- the, the, pr- the value for price on Lunchables was terrible. Terrible. It was all oh in my the God. packaging. It was all in yeah. the it was all the gimmick, but Lunchables were another one where, like, if, like, the kids who were, like, when I was a kid, the kids who had Lunchables, their parents were doctors. Like, that that's just how it was in my city. So Lunchables continues to be that, but I don't buy Lunchables because I'm smart enough to understand that I could just buy well, Lunchables all aren't the, even, like, good. Like, they're, not- they're not good, yeah. and you can buy all the ingredients for, like, less yeah. and get, like, five times more. Yep. So uh, Lunchables, not so much. Um we, I always got Capri Suns. My parents would buy me Capri Suns. So that was a li- that was kind of like access in a weird way. But it was special. And even actually at Thanksgiving, I was talking to my cousins about this because every Thanksgiving, you, every Thanksgiving in America, you have Martinelli sparkling cider. And, um, you know, for the kids, quote unquote, but it's the adults that drink it because we, it's tasty as hell. We always said that as a New Year's thing for our family. Oh, it was like, like the champagne. champagne at New Year's. Fake yeah. champagne. Yeah. Fake champagne. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Martinelli's is another one that I was talking to one of my older cousins about, about how like to this day we'll still, even at family events, and my cousin's like a doctor now, but even at like family events, we will still as adults pour ourselves a little cup of like the Martinelli's and kind of feel like we're having something that means more to us emotionally than even drinking like wine or a fancy champagne. Like it's, um, so yeah, I would be curious to know, like if people who have like those like childhood foods that seemed unattainable as a child, like what those foods are now and have you had them and are they as decadent as you thought and imagined that they would be? There you go. Um, my rave is sort of to make up for me hating the Steve Jobs movie so much, I guess last week, is I saw Spotlight and it was very good. Very, very good as expected. And if you are a reporter or journalist of any kind, you should definitely watch this movie because it is like journalist porn. It is like so much like getting to the bottom of things and journalists solving problems and making the world a better place and it'll make you want to get out your shovel and dig into all the dirt in the world it's the the dirt itself is horrifyingly dark and everything but in terms of like making our profession seem and the process uh you know pumping that up and showing the ins and outs and the failures and the successes of it it's tremendous it's very oscary movie and i highly highly recommend it that's it straightforward do that watch spotlight it's pretty cool. It's even better when you eat string cheese. I'm sure. Great. Smuggle that. Why in. don't they sell that at movie theaters? I guess because I guess it's probably um, hard to eat in the dark. You kind of even have a pretty good view False. of string cheese. False. No. False. Hmm. It's a great like eating while watching a movie thing because it's kind of like popcorn, you know, like you just kind of work at it. Get little nibbles every once in a while. You get there in the end. It's but good. all all the movie foods like. Candy usually it's like bite-sized candies, like a, you know, like a Junior Mint or a, a Sour Patch Kids or popcorn or all things you can like just sort of reach in and grab some, put in your mouth. 
you can't do that that with string cheese you have to look at the string cheese i feel like or at least sort of feel it where the seams in it are you know fair enough fair enough i'll tell you what i will investigate and i'll get back to you (laughs) please please do some from the field (laughs) reporting that's what we need a fusion of your rant and my rant (laughs) there you go watch (laughs) bring some string cheese to spotlight pass it out with the crowd and get feedback on how they felt about it good all right thanks guys for listening see you next week string cheese or not bye 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 Like a puppet on a string. <laughs> <laughs>